concerned with problems of democracy in terms of elections with a case study of the Florida elections of 19, sorry, for the year 2000, one of, uh, according to the author, most momentous uh, events of the century uh, will forever cloud the future of electoral contests in the United States and creates a legitimacy crisis. And yet, oddly enough, it didn't happen even weeks out of, after Bush versus Gore, both the election and the court case. Um, the number of extraordinary events uh, that occurred, uh, including all the competing interpretations of what was appropriate, came about as a result of one very simple fact, which is the election was the closest in history. The margin of victory after various recounts varied, but uh, something like 0.001 of 1% difference uh, out of six million votes cast, roughly half the eligible voters, uh, anywhere from uh, first Gore being declared the winner, then Bush being declared the winner, Bush conceding defeat, then retracting his concession, then uh, demands for recounts in Broward, Palm Beach, uh, Dade counties by the Democrats, and recounts of overseas absentee ballots of mostly selective service people, uh, largely voting Republican, being demanded by the Republicans, appeals to the courts, certification of the elections uh, by the Secretary of State, um, two sets of appeals to the highest court of Florida, uh, ultimately resulting in order to continue the count or the recounts, but not providing guidelines on what recounts should go forward. Then an appeal by the Republicans to the Supreme Court, a ruling on December 4th, I think it was, 2000, stating that uh, the count uh, should continue for the time being, but there was a five to four vote, and then the final vote saying you've run out of time, December 10th. The gig is up, and you need to think about recognizing the victory of President Bush. Uh, first of all, I don't know, how old were you guys then? It was 11 years ago, 11 and 10 and a half years ago? Nine. Presumably you were all aware of it, talking about it in school. Well, well, since you were probably the youngest, no? Kind of. Not even? You don't remember 9-11? I do? remember 9-11, I don't Nine was, you know, slightly older, so you're slightly more likely to remember it, but and it was more dramatic, of course. But <coughs> I'm surprised this wasn't a big deal. You didn't talk about it in school. We talked about it in third grade, school. but not while it happened. Yeah. We were sliding Well, I'm glad you didn't have your education disrupted by this momentous event. I mean, what is the paradox about all this that uh, the article points out? Was it a legitimacy crisis? What do you mean by legitimacy crisis? Um, if you read the chapter, you would know what that means. But uh, um, by legitimacy crisis, we mean uh, cast being doubt over the declared winner uh, for having won fair and square, and therefore a sense that uh, the person who holding the office, regardless of who it would have been, uh, didn't deserve to be there, and therefore a, a sense that uh, we're not going to cooperate with you. We're not going to respect your authority. We might even um, rebel against the system. In extreme case, a legitimacy crisis can bring down governments all over the world. 
Electoral fraud, electoral maladministration is extremely common around the world. The United States population heard about it repeatedly uh, during those um, approximately one month crisis, 36 days I think to be precise. Um, and now they discovered the situation was very much a problem at home. Um, so one of the questions is, was there a legitimacy crisis? After all, it was being predicted. Political scientists said in a couple of years after, with the benefit of some hindsight, that uh, this is never going to be the same for America. Crisis. That, I think that was the third time in U.S. history that the winner of the popular vote um, didn't get elected. Jefferson, I think, was the first, and maybe Hayes, I'm not sure, Rutherford Hayes, the election in 1877 or 76, I'm, I'm not mistaken, uh, that ended, was to lead to 1877's end of Reconstruction in the South. Um, Quite often, more often, the president didn't get a majority, but that would be a reflection of the uh, three or four candidates that were in the race. And so uh, it's harder to get a majority when you simply split up the votes 25% each. Uh, but, and it was true that the Electoral College did give Bush you know, one vote more. It's 271 votes needed to get elected. Um, but when we're talking about legitimacy crisis here, I think we're thinking of something else. What are we thinking of? It's really hard to just have class discussions if you don't do the reading. No one read it? Zero? Okay, you know, you get out of your education what you put into it. If you don't practice your reading, you're not going to become really good readers. And then when you apply to law school in four years, don't get the score you're looking for, the answer is right now you didn't do the reading. You can get your scores up if you worry about such things or improve your critical thinking skills by practicing reading for a couple hours a night. But if you don't do it, then you're basically wasting your time and the taxpayer's money. Okay, that's something to think about. Uh, it also means that I end up being a lecturer in a small seminar, which is really unfortunate, and you may not even like that. Um, so really, please try to do the reading. You know, really straightforward, easy to understand stuff. Uh, the legitimacy crisis that, that didn't come to pass was the one that basically said, you know, that you'd have in developing countries when there are allegations of fraud. Uh, and in this case, it wasn't fraud in the sense of rigging the vote by falsifying election returns, although that may have occurred. Uh, it was something that was legal. And what sometimes is said is the scandal is what's legal, not so much what's illegal. Because what you could get away with, first of all, the Supreme Court decided the winner of the election. Now, maybe that was a good thing, because it seems to have not produced the kind of legitimacy crisis you see in developing countries where people take to the streets, say the government must stand down. There's a confrontation uh, you know, outside the equivalent of the White House or the Congress in Tahrir Square or Red Square or wherever, you know, 
thousands or millions of civilians are gathered and police and army soldiers are there shooting tear gas or shooting bullets or not shooting and then the protesters win. Uh, none of that happened. In fact, you know, Bush took office uh, a little over five weeks later and except for the recession that had, uh, occurred up to 9-11, that was the big news of the first nine months and Bush announced uh, that there would be a tax rebate which meant to stimulate the economy, and Donald Rumsfeld talked about the threat from China, uh, which is something that never was really addressed the rest of the Bush term. So had it not been 9-11, very probably we would have had much worse relations, at least more confrontational relations with China. Um, and you know, that's one of those point things about history that I often wonder about. Would we be big enemies of China now because we were confronting their, their rearmament with their been an arms race. Instead, we spent our money on Afghanistan and Iraq. And now, of course, uh, 10 years later, um, uh, someone once said, I think it was Bill Kristol, I was told that if I voted for the Republicans, we'd have three wars with Islamic countries. So I voted for a Republican, a Democrat won, and we have three wars with Islamic countries. Uh, all right, well, that's 10 years later. Um, so we haven't had those kinds of legitimacy crises, and the government went on at business as usual, but the Supreme Court in Bush versus Florida case voted five to four twice, the second time just basically ordering an end to the recount uh, and establishing the argument that uh, you'd run out of time. Oddly enough, in the five, they were all the GOP-leaning candidates, although Souter, who was nominated, I believe, by Ford or maybe George Herbert Walker Bush, but in any event, uh, Souter voted with the four along with Breyer. I can't remember exactly who was on the court exactly then, but um, uh, John Paul Stevens, Breyer, Souter, and uh, the fourth would have been somebody, I can't remember who, uh, Kennedy and um, O'Connor, who are swing voters, joined Scalia, Thomas, and Rehnquist uh, to vote with the five. Now, what was odd about this is that these guys normally vote federalism and states' rights. And these guys normally vote equal protection. And you had a reversal of this vote five to four because uh, in voting for <clears throat> states' rights and federalism, the Democrats said, let the state decide, according to the Constitution, how elections are gonna be conducted in that state, um, <clears throat> and let the Florida Supreme Court resolve any disputes at the Florida level about whether and how to, to conduct the recount. The recounts were proceeding. The court didn't say how to do the recounts. The court didn't say, um, Essentially, you know, what methods would be used to make it equal throughout the state. And so the GOP said this is an equal protection issue, something that the Democrats on the court, or at least the Democratic liberal types on the courts normally argue. That is, uh, that the votes are not counted the same way, or people are denied their rights on the basis of race, religion, sexual preference, language, group, class, etc. Even more strange, was that the court declared, I don't know if it was the only time in history, um, but one of, certainly the, one of the few times in history that this case will not be a precedent. Now normally, 
when the case is not a precedent, why is why? Why is the US Supreme Court case not a precedent normally? When, under what conditions does that occur? Um, I think when a opinion is You're on the right. You're very, very warm. Can anyone clarify? You're you're very, very warm. Normally, you don't get a precedent established when you don't have at least five or at least a majority of the votes with an identical reason for why they voted. So you can have a five to four decision which gives an order in the instant case. So. Um, it would operate like a civil law system, the legal system in the majority of the countries in the world, you based on codes and so forth, the continent of Europe, Latin America, all countries in the world that are not English post-colonies use civil law, and there's no, they don't rely on cases as precedents. When the Supreme Court has a majority vote, there is a winner and loser in the immediate case, it's just like in a civil law system. But if you don't have at least five votes out of nine, or six votes out of nine, or if there are only eight voting, five votes out of eight, uh, with the same argument, uh, then there is no legal precedent binding on the future because the existing law stands. Um, and sometimes it's very confusing to figure it out because you, you might have two or three written opinions for the majority, and there may be a majority on some legal issues but not a majority on other issues, even though there might be three separate opinions. Normally, you tr they, the court tries to simplify it for the legal profession and for the world by you know, not writing extra opinions just because you might think you can write it better. That's partly because of workload issue. The justices are very busy and they're trying to write for posterity and clarity and efficiency in the legal system. But if they make a decision you know, that really is based on a different rationale, and it's quite easy to understand why you can be in agreement on the, on the result of a case, but have a different sense of what the law should be in, in making the argument. In this particular case, they did all agree, as far as I know, but they just said there's not, this is not going to be a precedent. What they basically were saying, without necessarily admitting it, was that we've got a constitutional crisis, we have to resolve it, um, and we're acting like a political body, not a legal body. But the very fact that it was a legal body that made the ruling made the decision legitimate to the extent that the American people agreed that they wanted the Supreme Court to be a third party dispute resolver. Uh, and even if they really were acting politically, uh, someone had to make the decision. Maybe it wasn't the right decision. Uh, and so the, the controversy was resolved. On the other hand, uh, there is a sense that this decision was a disgrace. Um, first of all, because it was so nakedly political. How can you argue all the time, or 90% of the time, that when there are conflicting values between these two legal rationales, that all of a sudden both sides just happen to be five more, you know, five votes here and four votes here, both sides switch their legal positions that they normally take. Um, and the Supreme Court's effectively admitting that, and so there is a sense now that the Supreme Court is really much more of a political body. That, that had been well aware 
that fact had been well aware to the population, particularly since Robert Bork was nominated to the Supreme Court, who was a conservative and was you know, not allowed to take the, his seat because of the votes, not having a sufficient number of votes in the Senate. Uh, and then Clarence Tomic, who was confirmed, still was really raked over the coals, particularly after being recalled to testify when Anita Hill came forward with her story about sexual abuse, or at least some kinds of, of abuse of her in um, two series of jobs, one in the uh, Equal Employment, Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, and I forgot el where else he worked. But anyway, um, uh, and you know, most of the population believed her and felt that you know, he shouldn't have been allowed to have his seat less clear. You know, a lot of people said, okay, he did that, but you know, boys will be boys. Um, it, was, it really brought sexual harass harassment, not sexual abuse, but sexual harass harassment is, I guess, a more correct term, or gender harassment. It really introduced the country to that whole issue. You know, now you probably have just grown up with this as being something you take, take for granted as, as a, a matter of importance. Is that correct or not? Something that people... But you know, before 1991 Columbus Day weekend, which was the weekend, uh, actually the Friday before that weekend when she first testified, uh, which is exactly 20 years, this, this Columbus Day weekend will be the 20th anniversary of, of that, her testimony. I'm sure people will talk about it next October, early October. Um, the country never really talked about these things. Now, I remember in 1978, Meryl Streep, or maybe 19, 79 or 80, whatever the year was. Meryl Streep was in a movie about politicians in Washington, D.C., and there was an awful lot of, you know, hanky-panky going on with the senators, and I guess since I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time, I wondered whether this was exaggerated or not. Uh, but it, it was a popular movie, and, and, you know, people talked about that kind of thing, but it wasn't really interpreted as something completely unacceptable. Now, it's generally considered to be un unacceptable. Um, I was very surprised to see in Washington, in the New York Times on Sunday, in the arts page, the headline on, uh, is it Kathleen Turner's an actress? I haven't heard of actresses my age. Um, anyway, the, the headline in the New York Times was, get me abroad, which, you know, that's the kind of expression, you, 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 have you heard of that expression before? You don't hear it very often, right? You wouldn't expect it in the New York Times. Well, in any event, you know, the author was Charles McGrath, who was a famous writer, and the, you know, he may not have written the headline, but he did include the quote from the director who had hired her for the role. And I don't know if, if in acting circles it's acceptable for powerful directors to use that kind of terminology, but you know, that, I just took note of it because I thought, isn't that strange that someone would use such a term? You know, one, one would have thought that, that surely the New York Times would not use that as a headline. Um, all right, so um, <clears throat> with that little detour, what we can say then is that something very strange happened. We had an election which uh, showed, first of all, that the emperor had no clothes. That is, oh, only third world countries have non-credible elections with rigging, with poor administration. And second, um, that the Supreme Court is apolitical. Now we know that it's nakedly political when it chooses to be. Uh, and at this point, they couldn't have been more political for the reasons that I've stated. 
Among the electoral administration problems that are listed in the chapter and were well known at the time, uh, first of all, were, was the re realization that without any fraud, the electoral mechanics were really terribly flawed. In fact, it happened that they, they, later on they did tests in Georgia and found our voting machines had an even larger error rate. The error rate in Florida was 2%, uh, certainly for the punch card. I think, I think it was for the state. But the punch card machines might have had a 5% error rate. And the error rate was even higher in Georgia, but since Georgia was so Republican, Bush won easily. So at least for the presidential election, there was no issue. But many, you know, each county in those days determined in Georgia and Florida what kind of voting administration they would use, paper ballots, punch cards, touch machines, or what have you. There were relatively very few touch machines in the year 2000, only 11 years ago. Now these machines that you've, you've all voted by now? Has everyone, you haven't registered? I'm registered, I haven't had a chance. Oh, you haven't had a chance, okay, so you're only 18? Well, you must have had a chance then. Well, Last fall. Not a presidential election. Okay, but I meant to vote. I All right, well, that's the pattern in the United States that the chapter talks about. You know, we only get 50% or maybe 60% in a presidential election. European countries are 70 to 90%. Canada and Mexico are 60 to 70%. We're among the lowest of the low. And yet we have, we thought, you know, relatively clean elections. Uh, by the way, why, why do you suppose we have lower turnout? Okay, do you agree with that? Um, I do, and I also um, agree with my government teacher's um, ideas to what would fix that. Um, that would be to switch to a more proportional democracy like what Israel has. It's mentioned in the chapter as well. Not just Israel, but most all of Europe. Um, anyone disagree? We've talked a lot about a, a major issue which would counter that argument to a large extent. Are you just talking about presidential elections? That's what I'm talking, I, 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 you're on to what I'm referring to, yes. Right, so what is the counter argument? I mean, uh, having, I mean, it's just one person you're voting for, so. Now you're talking about the electoral system, I'm talking about oh. the constitutional system. When you mention presidential elections, that's, that's a constitutional issue, not an electoral system. Electoral system has to do with what, one, Ivan, Ivan. what Ivan said, that um, um, I lost my train of thought, uh, proportional representation versus plurality elections, that's electoral system. But presidential elections, the office of the presidency refers to what? Right, but, but what, as opposed to what? As opposed to like a parliament or something, or a congress. And what else? What kind of constitution do we have? The federal. Yes, so what does that imply about this debate? Hmm. How many times have we talked about Confederalism, federalism, and unitary elections. What does that imply? What does a unitary system lack that a federal system has? And? That's right. 
No, that's the electoral system. That's the, the proportionality versus plurality. The answer is if you have more federalism, you have more elections. Don't you remember when I said, what percentage of the elections in the United States are national elections? We talked about it. Guess again. How many fed national elections are there? One, no. That's right. You know, roughly 100 senators, 454 yeah. congresspersons, president and vice president, which is simultaneously now because the constitutional amendment. So, roughly five and a half hundred. Okay, and how many state and local elections are there in the United States? Five hundred thousand, and that's not including nonpartisan elections like school boards and things like that. Uh, so, what percentage is five hundred or five hundred thousand? Point one. One tenth of one percent. Is that right? You can actually do the math. Five hundred, five hundred thousand. One, two, three. Um, so five over five hundred is one. No, it's one percent. No, that that'd be one over one thousand, which is just point one. Five over five thousand. I'm sorry, it's not five over five hundred. Five over five thousand is point. You're absolutely right. I Point one of one percent of our elections are national elections. So we're electioned out, is goes the argument. It's not that we don't think our vote doesn't count, and we do vote much higher rates when the stakes are greater, and we perceive the stakes to be greater for the presidency, but we don't have a clear sense uh, that we need to vote every time, because we vote every year. In Europe, without local elections, they vote every four or five years. So naturally, the turnout rate's gonna be 40 to 60% higher in Europe than it is here. On the other hand, one might think that Americans are also more cynical about having an impact on the presidential elections, partly because they have local elections. Because you actually can have more of an effect on a local office holder who you can actually talk to and visit. Um, you know, Gabrielle Giffords paid a huge price for trying to reach out to her constituents, and it was only few dozen people that she was talking to, and most people, you know, don't bother to even find out when their congressperson is meeting with constituents. I mean, you've got to look on the website, or you've got to read the local newspapers, or what have you. And most people can't be bothered, or they're too busy, or they just can't make it when the when the time is available, if it's during the week as opposed to the weekend. Uh, in any event, uh, there was a sense after the 2000 election among political scientists that this sense that your vote doesn't count would be reinforced by the fact that it wasn't the voters who ultimately decided who got to win the 2000 presidential elections. It was the US Supreme Court. Of course, that's a little bit of an exaggeration too. Why? Did the US Supreme Court decide the election? Well, no. Right, so it was only because the vote was so close, which created this whole nightmare to begin with. So, uh, in terms of the types of problems that came forward in Broward, Palm Beach, and Dade counties, uh, Gore won easily, but Gore sued to continue the recount. 
Only Broward County finished its recount and Gore gained 400 votes. After the 400 vote, it was roughly, you know, only a 1,500 vote margin. 1,500 vote margin later on got to be about 800 votes out of 6 million. Anyone got a calculator? Yeah. One, two, three. That's equivalent of 8 over 60,000. Um, so if this was 0.1%, this is 0.01%, slightly more than 0.01 of 0.01 of 1%. So it was a 0.0013 of a percent or total or just percent? So that, that's. So it's not even one percent. Well, no, no, it's, it's not even point oh one percent. Right, it's below. It's below point one percent. It's it's point one three of one point oh one three of one percent. That's incredibly close. It's much more narrow than the mar the statistical margin of error. If you did a regression analysis to try to figure out to what extent is this explained by voter preference, you would say it's impossible to know. From a statistical point of view, this was clearly a tie, unless you could show some systematic fraud. So the voting machines had this huge error. The, the biggest error came from punch cards with, with chads. What's a chad? Anyone know? Yeah, they had the punch cards that I used in my sophomore, junior year in college at the computer center. The whole program was a stack of cards. And if any one of those cards was wrong, no, it didn't work. Um, and if, 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 if the machine didn't punch the chad through, or you know, the elderly person couldn't hit, put enough pressure on it, then the chad would be hanging, then the vote would be not counted. So in many of these counties, they had unbelievable rates of undervoting. Now normally you would accept undervoting in election, and what kind of elections? What is undervoting? Well, that may be correct, but what do we mean now in this particular context? What what would undervoting mean? Yes, but say it more precisely. Undervoting is a situation where the voter is recorded as not having voted for the office for anybody. Okay, you expect that, particularly in presidential election years, when you've got lots of referenda maybe state and local representatives, typically in most states the county and very local office holders run in odd years, but in many other states they run just on even years, but plenty of office holders run for office in, pre in even years, especially presidential even years in Georgia, and a lot of people just don't vote. I don't vote. If I, if I, sometimes you know, if I don't know anything about them, or some of the referendums that I can't understand the ballot, and I haven't followed it and I haven't done my homework, I just don't vote. But typically on a presidential year, do you expect anyone not to vote for the presidency? I mean, it may be, uh, there, there might be the odd person who will protest, but it's a conscious decision. I don't like either of them and I'm not voting for either of them. But you don't expect four, eight percent undervoting for the presidential office. But this happened, at least in part, because the machine doesn't record a vote being cast if the chad doesn't create a complete hole. So if the chad is hanging, 
then it's recorded as a no vote, non-vote. Doesn't record it for either candidate. So that was, you know, even if it was a 1% rate, that was still much, much larger uh, than the margin of error. The, the Chad problem alone was thought to be resolved how? Recounts, okay? So the problem is there's no guidelines on when is a hanging Chad indicate a voter preference and when is it just not punched through or not? And it, you know, it was, the issue is decided on a county by county basis and since the commissioners are appointed by the local politicians, Republican counties would have Republican appointees and Democratic counties would have Democratic appointees and surprise, the Republicans would say, you know, hanging chad, you don't count it ever. Or it's gotta be at least punctured so you can see daylight. But if it's just a little bubble and Granny, you know, Florida has the most retirees in the country, if Granny can't push it hard enough to push it, then she was basically not indicating her preference. Um, in any event, you know, there's probably some legitimate concern about you know, people sort of punching the cards or if not any deliberate fraud or rigging, you know, one, some of the, the bubbles getting accidentally nicked or bumped. Uh, if you've never seen one of these cards, it may be hard to imagine exactly how it works, but um, maybe sometime in your school days you had punch cards for some kind of standardized test or you never did. You did? Yeah. A machine that you'd punch the answer as opposed to filling with a pencil? Uh, no, we never had that. There was that like stuff like you have like tests or stuff like standardized tests where you punched up for you. So you for you, but you didn't punch it yourself. Yeah. Well, Georgia used to punch. Yeah. I used to punch in Georgia in two thousand. New York City, we used the machines where you you pull the lever down, and those are not considered to be. I mean, when they fail, the whole machine fails. It's not. I mean, maybe there's the odd lever that doesn't get counted, I don't know. They have an error rate too, but not as high as the punch cards. But the punch cards were thought to be better because they were, you know, IBM said they were good. Do you think we should have like a standardized voting mechanism? Um, yeah, I, I feel like if we have one of those and if it was well regulated, like we would have. Well, the Constitution it would have to be amended to do it because the Constitution allows each state to decide. It could be done voluntarily you could somehow convince the 50 states to all adopt the same system. But just given the cost of the Diebold machines and all the allegations, now Diebold was giving, like any federal and state contractor, huge campaign contributions. And so the perception was the machines were, you know, not necessarily the best. They just, the people who voted for the machines were the ones who got those camp campaign contributions from that particular company. I mean like I, I, I'm mostly concerned about the fact that in the years, I don't know if we had them by 2001, but certainly by 2002 we had our touch machines and they didn't leave a paper trail. There was no way to, to check for errors. Um, so a major, you know, just a standard engineering check and balance, if, if integrity is an important issue, then you've got to pay for it just to verify that, you know, you, know, you do the initial count, but then someone can go back if they want to challenge the results and, and check the, you know, the, the punch machine or whatever it is that can be done. Or you could have, um, now that there is a f also the great fear that if you have a single voting system that's computerized or electronic, then any software person could 
figure out a way to hack the system or was involved with a bribe would, would rig the results. So a single system is, has that danger, whereas if you have two systems, then it would be require two, a much more complicated plot to pull it off. That's what I was thinking, you'd have to have some kind of regulatory mechanism, because I was thinking like, in Las Vegas, they have the gambling machines, but they're regulated, you know, so that each one is. And you think those machines are honest? Uh, I, I think, I, I would, I'd say they're honest, I wouldn't say necessarily are they're you? fair. Are you? Do you? Huh? Do you? Yeah, I, I'd say there. Do you know who owns most of those casinos? Uh, Certainly in the early days of Vegas. Uh, well, you're, you're going to say the mob, right? Yes. But I, I think that's totally different now. It's, Is it? Yeah. How do you know? How do I know? I, I don't know. I watch documentaries. Has the mob gone away in America? No. I, 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 to a degree, yes. But it's, it's still they arrest a few mobsters here, and 25 new ones appear there. They may not be Italians, but the Sicilian mafia. We've got, we still have the Cosa Nostra, but we, we also have the Russian mob, the, the Vietnamese mob, any immigrant group you know, has its share of mobsters. Why? Because um, they are in the business of bringing the people here in the first place for a fee, and then they collect by taxing your wages when you get here. And some of them are taxed to the point where they work for the mob. Yeah, I just, I think, Maybe that's, that was true 30, 40 years ago. I, I think modern You don't think that organized crime is active in America? Who do you think I, brings I, I, all those I'm drugs sure in? I'm saying Who brings all those drugs into the country? That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying. I'm saying in Las Vegas. I'm saying the casinos there. And I'm saying that you could regulate, I think. It's logically possible that you could regulate to a degree the could. machines. Could. But what, what evidence do you have that's any cleaner? What, what are you saying? You're, you made the claim that. It's regulated honestly. Yeah, they, they've instituted reforms over the last twenty years, so that it's not uh, so that it's fair. Oh, well, not fair. I wouldn't say because gambling, I think, is inherently biased, but I'd, I'd say it's certainly clean from a regulatory standpoint. Is it? How would you know? Isn't there a federal organization that? Um, goes it's called the FBI. They look for. There's the FBI. Doing there's a state agency. FBI existed thirty years ago too, and sixty well, years mean, ago. You're talking about like slot machines. Anything. Well, don't they have to be? Uh, don't they have to have a chance of winning? Not necessarily like a fifty-fifty, but don't they have to have the possibility of winning in any sort of machine that you use? Yeah, and, and it's not the casinos got to have people win or nobody will go. So there's that economic reality. Uh, so but isn't there a federal mandate that says you have to do that? I think it's a state in Las Vegas. Yeah, there might be laws. There might be. All these laws, but the question is, are they being, are they enforced? I think they have people that go around and uh, uh -huh. check They out. had them 30 and 60 years ago, too. The mob has a very easy solution for that. They kill people who, t who talk to the police. They still kill people who talk to the police. I have the solution. You should, it'd be really creepy, and no one would want to vote, but if everyone's blood like has their DNA in it, right, so you could have to vote what you have a break. Yeah, and then like touching the person's neck, you know, and then that would be your blood. So like, if if there was a question of whether or not you voted for this person or this person, they would find your DNA. But your vote, you have a right to a secret ballot. Well, but that we don't. You, it's a, it's I don't care who knows my vote. Like, yeah, but most Americans, want, and you would want it to be secret if this was a polarized society. 
So so some, you, somebody found out who you voted, they might get even with you. So what if you get like dead people's blood and stuff like that? Like, yeah, Well, you could give a fingerprint. Um, I gave, I think when I took standardized tests, I had to put my fingerprint on the test at the, at the beginning. Just as a kind of way of scaring people off from having imposters come take the test for them. They probably didn't even check those. Yeah, I'm sure they never checked those. Well, they, they would if there was a challenge. It's, in any event, if there was any question as to how you got 800s when the first time you took it, you got 300s. Um, There'd be a, a way to way to check it out. Uh, yes, in the era of genetic uh, knowledge, you know, genetic testing that didn't exist even 30 years ago, 40 years ago, anyway. Uh, there are all kinds of ways of checking, but still, um, there are reasons to doubt the authenticity of voting. Uh, among other things, the lower the turnout, the less the public cares. And the less the public cares, the only people involved are the people who have interests, pecuniary interests in a, in a given election. So um, Derwin Brown was murdered. I met him before his assassination, running for DeKalb, DeKalb County Sheriff. And he was murdered by the incumbent, who, who was offended that he said, I'm, I guess, the, uh, he wanted to clean up the corruption in the sheriff's office, because the the sheriff was getting kickbacks, personal kickbacks, not just campaign contributions, um, from the companies that do bail, that provide bail bonding. Uh, apparently, that's a very corrupt business, not just in terms of legal corruption, which is to give campaign contributions to the candidates who are the incumbents of the office who are going to decide who gets the bonding contracts. That's legal. All, all the public finance of every state in the country uh, is financed by Wall Street, and the public finance divisions of Wall Street do campaign contributions to whoever's running. Certainly, it, whoever's likely to win, and if it's a close rate, they give to both sides. That's just a cost of doing business. And that's been upheld under the First Amendment of the United States that people should have the right to give campaign contributions. Now, you can't, it can't be a bribe, uh, and, but it's hard to prove a bribe. But you get access. Uh, and the fact that you're paying for access to a office holder after the fact is, for my mind, really a bribe. Because you know you get access if you pay the campaign contribution, and the person that doesn't pay the contribution doesn't get access. All right, in addition to the Chads, you had the problem of a disenfranchisement of African Americans, especially legal disenfranchisement. Um, to the extent that African Americans were disproportionately represented in the prisons, which they were, as a result, particularly of the attempt to have drugs be punished much more harshly and severely. And um, it's legal in many states, including Florida in 2000, if you have a felony, you're either temporarily or permanently deprived of your right to vote. Then there was challenges on the registration process, which again disproportionately afflicts minority and lower income people of all races uh, because you have requirements of certain kinds of identification. Uh, and theoretically, Georgia has that law now with the voter identification requirement, uh, although uh, it was challenged, and I'm not up to date exactly what was decided, but 
you know, they used to require a driver's license. Well, if you didn't drive, or at least you didn't have a driver's license, or you'd lost yours, you couldn't vote. And generally, wealthy people, you know, have drivers, have cars, have drive, have driver's licenses, and so forth. But there are plenty of people in the state of Georgia, in the state of Florida, poor states where they rely completely on public transportation. No one ever had a car. No one taught them how to drive. Um, in any event, since they don't make enough money to pay for a car, um, or if they have a car, it takes too much to run it or to maintain it or to pay for the insurance, et cetera, et cetera. So you don't have a license. But or you've lost it. All you need is a little license. That's the new rule. They created a, a new voter ID card. But you still got to take public in transportation to go get that thing. There yep. are a lot of efforts being made there. I know I worked on the campaign in 2008, and we had shuttles. We would go to Section 8 housing, and we would go to, to you know traditionally more impoverished areas. And we went to talk to felons, and we were like, if you're off your papers, you can vote. Like That's how the rules are. So there are efforts being made. Yes, there are efforts being made, but you know, it just so happens that um, poor people, less educated people, vote less frequently than higher educated, higher income people because they increasingly feel like the government doesn't serve them. Uh, indeed, uh, if you try to explain why it is that people don't vote, generally, um, it's not that they don't feel like their vote counts. Um, they generally do feel that their votes count, uh, but what they don't feel is that they can have any impact. Um, here's an interesting point that was pointed out in the reading. Um, yeah. Uh, Voters have the ability to make reasonable judgments if they have the proper tools. Politicians believe negative campaigning works even though the efficacy of questionable campaigns is unproven. Voters need to change the environment so that it is in the interest of political parties and candidates to conduct more positive campaigns. Um, but it's clear that the poor, the uneducated, the racial and ethnic minorities are particularly burdened by, the, how, by how to register. And once they're not on the re once your registration has been challenged, uh, most many poor people feel like the, the procedures are just too complicated. Now, President Clinton had created the Motor Voter Law, which allowed states to allow voter registration if they so chose at motor vehicle registration departments. But then again, it's still for people who want to drive. And then they also made it available at Social Security offices and a few other voting offices. Uh, if made it possible if states wanted to make it. So there was some improvement and voters, you know, there are efforts made particularly by Democratic parties to help underprivileged people get registered to vote. And more recently, just in the last three or four years, as a result of the experience in Oregon, absentee ballots um, have been increasingly used by people where the old day you had to prove you weren't going to be there that day. Now in many states you can vote by absentee. I think Oregon now is completely absentee voting. And an additional reform is you can vote earlier um, by if you're willing to travel and you have access to a car, because it probably takes too many buses to get there, but to, to the main county voting centers, you can vote a week or two early. Now, one of the problems with all of these processes, is, although it does boost turnout, which is encouraging, um, 
one would like to think that everyone ought to vote on the same day so it represents a snapshot in time. Uh, if you vote early, then you're not really aware of what happens in the campaign or new facts that come to light in the days between when you vote and when the majority of people vote on election day. Yeah. I was just thinking, um, does that influence the election at all if people do early voting? Does it change things? Because like, let's say somebody votes two weeks later, <coughs> like, I guess they're locked in into that. I guess, would that, does it change, would that change the results at all? Undoubtedly, there's studies going on, and I haven't read those studies because I'm not an expert on this at all, or don't, haven't come across those studies. You want me to guess? You know, do, do I think it changed the outcome? Yes, I think it does. If you have higher turnout, um, and the turnout ref reflects more Democrats or more Republicans than would have voted, then it would affect it accordingly. My sense is the people voting early are people who generally vote more often or generally at least have a car. So they tend to be slightly more affluent than the average person in the, in the society. The problem of non-voting in the United States is, is tinged with partisan implications because the wealthier you are, the more you have at stake in the system and the, more, the higher your voting rates. So Republicans discourage all these reforms because the higher the turnout, the more likely you are to get lower income people to vote who tend to vote Democrat. Low turnout is not a, generally a problem for Republicans, even though civics textbooks teach that democracies need well-informed and active voters. Not only voters, but also political participation generally is never excessive in American society. It's quite the reverse. It's not like in Latin America. Revolutionary societies where the excess of participation means that the government can't even govern. Um, this was the argument that the Egyptian regime has used after Tahrir Square brought Mubarak down. They said, okay, now, Life has got to move on, and they arrested people who are still protesting in Tahrir Square and more or less got away with it because they, the military regime, which is still a reformist regime, nevertheless unknown on what, what its long-term intents are or what means it will use. Indeed, it doesn't even know itself what it probably will decide. But it did say enough is enough. No more political participation. In the United States, the problem is, and we are regarded as more politically participating than Europe, uh, that, that may be a counting or methodology problem, but we have, first of all, more local government, more citizen participation and issues that things like school boards, which are monopolized by the states in Europe. Education in France is a national policy established by national bureaucrats. Uh, and you know the local school uh, principal is, is appointed by the Paris bureaucracy. Uh, principal in DeKalb County, where I live, is decided by the DeKalb uh, school bureaucracy, which is overseen by the whatever the school board director, what's it called? The school board appoints the supervisor? Is that superintendent. superintendent, okay, thanks. So the superintendent is theoretically in charge of the principals, but he probably relies on his or her uh, vice superintendent or associate superintendent for schools, or whatever the title would be, to. You know, basically promote principles, and that's basically established you know, through that whole system. Um, another problem was, you know, the Republicans said, you know, we have all these absentee ballots. When the first ballot was called on behalf of Gore on election night, that's because no absentee ballots had been counted at all. As they started to be counted, uh, and then continued to be counted during this whole controversy, uh, it was largely 
heavily in, vote, uh, in Bush's favor because most people voting by absentee ballot in 2000 were not a convenience absentee ballot, but people were literally physically out of the state of the day, which was the rule of the law at the time. And many of those were service people, which in a volunteer army means generally people who are conservative. And so for all the problems of alleged disenfranchisement of felons and others with registration problems and the problems of the hanging chads and even allegations of voter intimidation on the street and even more wild allegations that weren't necessarily substantiated that the count was falsified, which could happen, by the way, if any situation where the, both parties are not present for the count and are not vigilant. And you know, in African-American neighborhoods, it tends to be mostly Democrats. But of course, you don't have to live in the county to be present. So a well-organized machine would just make sure somebody would be at every single precinct at closing just to verify that the official tally is what is recorded on the machine. What do you think about the argument that um, like Ralph Nader split the vote, the Democratic vote, and that's the reason why um, four wasn't elected in Florida? Uh, that could be. I'm, you know, that enraged, that basically lost Nader's reputation among liberals. Um, Nader's position was Gore and, and Bush were both beholden to corporate contributions and uh, they may have been slightly different corporations, but it was still business as usual. And actually, I agreed with that argument at the time, although I did vote for Gore. I did, didn't feel like Nader didn't. I felt Nader had a right to run. Buchanan also ran, so it wasn't just Nader. So Buchanan theoretically was taking votes away from Bush as well. Uh, he ran as an independent. And in fact, the butterfly ballot, which was another one of those controversies, did you remember that? The butterfly ballot happened because on some of the paper ballots, or maybe it was the punch card, I don't know what, it wasn't aligned properly. So on the left there was Gore's name, but it was misaligned, so it was Buchanan that was opposite Gore. So a lot of people who voted, there's no question that Buchanan got huge numbers of votes in, in Broward and elsewhere. And you couldn't reverse those in a recount. But, you know, it, if you just looked on the left and you punched the thing next to it, you wouldn't notice that for some reason, I, I, I can't quite describe the ballot. I've got a picture right here. Oh. Hey, I just don't understand how that happens. If it's a national election, no, for the, the, the ballots are determined at the county level. Oh, okay. That's the whole point. Okay, so here, thanks to this presentation, you see Gore's name. And there's an arrow, I guess, at this for this one. The opposite. Now, oh, Buchanan. Yeah. So if you you wouldn't have presumably voted for the socialists, but above it was Pat Buchanan running as an independent, and there was a circle here, which is the second in line, but it's still three quarters of it is actually within Gore's box. So it, you know, it is clear to anyone who's alert where to vote. But the allegation was. You want to be allowed to talk to your pastor and that's the, that's the infamous butterfly ballot. And you know, out of six million votes, one can easily imagine the vote margin of victory, but the butter uh, as being accounted just by that. But on the other hand, um, you know, it wasn't in every county that had these butterfly ballots, but it was a few of the counties. 
And what do you think the odds are of someone 70 years old with poor eyesight's making that mistake? Well, only one in a hundred would be one percent, and one percent was more than the victory margin. But of course, as I said, wasn't every county had the butterfly ballot. Uh, now the question is, what kind of reforms are necessary? Well, for Ivan's point, PR is the electoral system is said to be a way of getting higher turnout. That might be a spurious correlation. Turnouts are as high as 90% in Europe. They use proportional representation. Therefore, your vote counts. Where in effect, in our system, which is a plurality system, your vote doesn't count unless your candidate wins. Right? Everyone understand that? Because it's winner take all. And if you have a multi-candidate race, it's even worse because a majority of the ballots often will not even be counted. Whereas at least in a majority system where you have to get a majority, and if you don't in the first round, you have a runoff of the top two candidates, at least in the final round, uh, a majority of votes do count. And it's only the minority votes that don't count. But with Nader and Buchanan in the race, in some states, not, no candidate got 50%. So uh, a minority of votes counted. So proportional representation would be a cure if you think the reason that vote, voter turnout is higher in Europe is because if 10% of the ballots go to candidate X, then he, he or she gets 10% of the seats or, or for the party of candidate X. Um, there is PR in some states for the Electoral College. Most have winner take all, but about four to six states, the number changes every presidential election depending on what states decide, but some number of states allocate it. It's not a perfect proportional thing, obviously, because you have X number of electoral votes in any given state, and so at the very least, you've got, you know, especially if you have relatively few, like two electoral votes, for example. I guess you have to have at least three, because it's, it's the number of senators plus congresspersons. So say you only have three, uh, and the vote turns out to be 90 to 1, do you, you give the person three electoral votes, two electoral votes, or one electoral vote? Questions like that in terms of the remainder. Yeah. Could you not say that it's, it could be considered a positive thing that we have lower, like a kind of low voter turnout? Because if you're a conservative, you'd make that argument. Is crazily like upset. I mean, we know some things are going to change between both parties, but they're so, everyone is so like moderate and right <coughs> that If you're George Will and you're a conservative, you say uh, low turnout is not a problem at all. It, it, it reflects it reflects satisfaction, not dissatisfaction. The counter argument is low turnout reflects despondency, despair, the view that the vote doesn't count. Um, and you know, one has to recognize, I think, the fact that different parts of the electorate don't vote for different reasons. For working people, a lot of it's just in Georgia, for example, the polls are only open 12 hours a day. In New York, the polls, the votes are, polls are open from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m., which is 3 and 6 is 9 from 24 is 15 hours a day. 
for a working person, particularly who doesn't have transportation, has to take care of kids and work, voting means leaving the kids alone, for example. Or uh, if you're in a rural area, you know, it could be a very long drive to the, to the closest place to vote. Other people don't vote out of despair, and other people don't vote because they're perfectly happy with the alternatives. Other people don't vote because they're generally happy, but they don't know enough about the candidates to say it's worth, worth the trouble. Many people just forget if we're talking about off-year elections. I think everybody knows in a presidential year about the elections. But certainly in odd-year elections for local offices, people don't even know they're supposed to vote. And then in Georgia, I believe there's a runoff requirement for some offices. And so the runoff election, the regular election will get 20% turnout, and the runoff election for just two or three seats will get a 2% or 4% turnout. And that happens every odd election in Georgia in many counties. Yeah. What day uh, do most European countries have their voting? Yeah, another, another argument is it should be a national holiday. If you didn't have a work, if you didn't have it on a work day, um, then you wouldn't have this for those who don't vote because it's inconvenient. The response has been to provide these other alternatives. Uh, someday we'll just vote online, I imagine. I mean, you're allowed an hour off work to go vote. In Georgia? Yeah, each state is different. I, I don't think they have that in New York, but that's because in New York, first of all, three quarters to 80% of the voters, the place to vote is not very far from where you live. Second of all, um, there's you know, three extra hours to vote, mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Yeah, three extra hours. One on the morning side and two on the evening side. Um, in some countries, there's mandatory voting. Australia, for example, is mandatory voting. They, you have to pay a $10 fine if you don't vote, or theoretically, that's if it's enforced, and you only get 80% there. It also leads to a lot of irresponsible voting, which gets back to your point, Kelsey, that uh, people vote for Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, and you can you know, write in a candidate's name. And is that you want to make it so easy for voters that you get people who don't take their voting seriously involved. And, um, that's particularly obviously the case when you're voting for Donald Duck or, or just a protest vote that you don't take seriously. But there are also, some people say that partisan voting is not a really good idea. Now in Europe, the voting is much more partisan because of proportional representation. So people tend to vote their party. They don't get to throw the bums out for two reasons. One, with proportional representation, you end up with multi-party systems creating coalition governments. And second, because your vote counts, you generally always vote your ideology. You don't vote, vote on performance. Whereas in plurality systems, or even with two tour elections, where you tend to get three or four party systems, it's easier to throw the bums out. And therefore, voters are much more inclined to, have, to be moderate, the ones who are, who are willing to change their votes from one party to the next, and vote on the basis of performance rather than the basis of ideology. Also, we live in a much less ideological age. During the Cold War, people were much more apt to vote their class. Even in the United States, that was the case. Now, with the rise of cultural voting in the United States, and we talked about that, what is cultural voting? Voting on positions on social issues as opposed to economic issues. Um, we now have four types of voters. What were those four types again? the stuff we talked about. What are the four types of voters? What are the two dimensions? 
class ideology and social cultural issues. So you could have conservative social and liberal economic, liberal social and social conservative economic, and then you could have social conservative on both and, and liberal on both, right? Because you have the two dimensions creating four types. And so typically in the South, you get a lot of people who are inclined to be economically liberal because their, their incomes are lower. At least there was lower prosperity in the South until the big economic boom in the last couple of decades. But even still, you know, the South has a lot of very poor whites and a lot of very poor blacks, especially Mississippi, in both, both races. And the rural Georgian tends to be a lower income white voter. And the rural, the urban African American is either extremely prosperous, middle class, or in many cases in the very poor neighborhoods, very poor. So you get, in the case of Republicans, economic liberals and social conservatives, and among African Americans, economic liberals and social conservatives, the exact same thing. But the whites all tend to vote Republican, and the blacks all tend to vote Democrat. So at least in Georgia, you don't get four types of voters. Basically, the, the whites vote primarily on economic questions, and the blacks vote primarily on, I'm oh, sorry, the, the whites vote primarily on cultural questions, uh, and the blacks tend to vote primarily on economic. So we kind of, that still creates four kinds of voters, but it doesn't mean that someone who's personally socially conservative and economically liberal will vote Democrat because whites tend always to vote Republican. And the same African, African American except vice versa. They, they, they also are economically liberal and socially conservative, but they tend to always vote Democrat. Uh, and that was completely switched by Frank, because of Franklin Roosevelt, because the part, Lincoln was the party of the African American after slavery for obvious reasons, and he was a Republican. But when Franklin Roosevelt uh, became committed to immigrants and blacks in his electoral coalition, the Democratic Party became gained a migration of African American voters. It was consolidated by the 22nd Amendment, um, which abolished the poll tax, and the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Uh, so we're, what we're asking are questions about representative government and what does this election test tell us about the United States. First, it tells us that we radically need improvements in electoral administration, whether the states decide and they continue to decide. Uh, and what the states decided in Florida and Georgia is to have touch electronic voting, initially without a paper trail. And now, Theoretically, that with a paper trail, although I, I, the machines don't look any different than they did 10 years ago. So I don't know if they have a paper trail yet or not. Um, second, we have a situation where the Electoral College has been called into question. Because Bush got 500,000 less votes than Gore, one, there were many, many calls to abolish a system like this. Now, the argument is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But this 2000 elections said it is broken. Historically, the, what would be the advantage of an electoral college from the point of view of electoral fraud? What would be the argument? It's an argument that can be made that the electoral college is actually better to fight electoral fraud than the popular vote. Yeah. Well, yeah, so people can fake 
I don't know if that's any different between the electoral college system and a, just a pure plurality vote system. I think you're, you're very, very warm. You're on to something. Anybody else? Well, what's the difference? The elect, what is the electoral system if it's a national, if we have a constitutional amendment? Right now, we have effectively 50 electoral systems, right? Each state determines eligibility for voting. And if it so chooses, maybe even the counties decide, if not registration requirement, if, if not eligibility requirements, at least registration requirements and the type of voting machines that are used and so forth. So uh, in, in essence, what we get is you only have to monitor those states with an exceptionally close electoral vote. Now, sorry, both states with an exceptionally close popular vote inside the state. And that's typically only going to be very, very close one or two elections this year. 2000 was very freakish. I think Ohio and Pennsylvania were also fairly close in 2000, and then in 2004 again. And these are the swing states that are up for grabs, like Florida, and to some extent, Texas, California, New York. States like Utah are always going to be Republican. Hawaii are always going to be Democratic. So you don't even have to worry about counting the votes there, because they get all the electoral votes. Or if they decide to make a proportional representation, then you've got a problem. But as long as it's winner take all, most states, most of the time, and most elections in American history have had a very clear victory margin that wasn't called into question on a state by state. When Rutherford Hayes won in 1876, it was a fluke. And Bush versus Gore was a fluke. And if the Supreme Court hadn't decided to call off the count, they probably would have had, you know, they might have only just declared the winner of the presidency on January 19th, but they had another month or even another week to finish the count, and they could have taken another week or even two weeks. And still, you know, the transition team would still have had three weeks to plan who to appoint to cabinet positions and so forth. The argument was, though, that, you know, these Senate confirmations take place in the first three weeks of January before the president takes office, and the Senate wouldn't have had enough time to consider uh, those uh, appointments to the cabinet. Uh, just to conclude our discussion today, so I, I introduced this reading uh, just to, again, illustrate problems of federalism and electoral systems that we've been talking about with the European Union. This concludes our recommended, re uh, not a recommend, our uh, binder readings for the rest of the course. The balance, we're just going to be focusing our attention on uh, the, the rest of the global issues described in our, our other textbook. But I hope that you will take these lessons from this uh, best way binder readings that we've been trying to emphasize in order to analyze not only these problems that we're going to assess the rest of the semester, but in your, you're thinking about politics going into the future, problems of how much federalism, how many electoral system reforms, what are the effects of these systems on how our politics are conducted, and how voters feel about how safe uh, our elections are in this country. Okay, thanks, and we'll see you on Thursday.